Hey everyone, it's Stephanie from True Crime Anonymous. I just want to tell you about this app called Anchor. If you haven't heard about Anchor, it is the easiest way to make a podcast. Let me explain. It is free. There are creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. Anchor will distribute your podcast for you so it can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and many more. You can make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership, and it is everything you need in a podcast in one place. Download the free Anchor app today or go to anchor.fm to get started. True Crime Anonymous may not be suitable for all listeners. Listener discretion is advised. Hey everyone, I'm Stephanie and welcome to True Crime Anonymous. I miss you guys. I feel like I haven't posted an episode in forever and it's been a week. I haven't put out an episode since last Mass Murder Monday, but hey, here we are. It's Mass Murder Monday and I have another case for you today. And this one kind of took an unexpected turn for me. I decided that I hadn't really done a missing persons case in a while. Probably since like the first episode, um, Baby Sabrina. So I wanted to do an episode of a missing person maybe to help get some information out and get the case going again whatever um but this case has recently really recently taken a very unexpected turn today we're going to talk about the case of Lisa Ziegert. Now she was born on March 24th, 1968 in Holyoke, Massachusetts to her parents. Their names were David, no I'm sorry, Diane and George Ziegert and she was the second of four kids she had, you know, three siblings, David, Lynn, and Sharon. She had really, really, really curly brown hair and blue eyes, big blue eyes. And she had this wonderful giggle that if you had heard her laugh you would also laugh. I think everyone has that friend who has a laugh that every time they laugh, you're laughing not because something's funny, but because 
of their laugh. Their laugh is funny. Um, I think we all have that friend. And if you're that friend, shout out to you. We love you. <laughs> um, now she, you know, just grew up in the most average average household she had an average life um you know she did good in school her parents were married they had a great home life things were actually really good and not just from the outside but from the inside as well things were great she grew up to become a teacher and she became a teacher's assistant at Agawam Middle School. And that's where she lived uh, as an adult. She lived in Agawam, Massachusetts. Now, Agawam is just like a nice town. And nobody would know anything about Agawam. And the only thing that anyone knows really about Agawam is that that's the town that Six Flags is in. So if you have been to Six Flags in Massachusetts, you have been to Agawam, Massachusetts. Hey, fun fact. But I, before this case, literally knew nothing about Agawam except that that's where Six Flags flags is and I live in Massachusetts so I'm assuming that that's what everybody else in Massachusetts knows about Aguam is that's where Six Flags is I just said that 300 times but anyway she was the teacher's assistant at Aguam Middle School and she helped teach special needs children and she was so passionate about helping special needs kids. And the kids really loved her and responded well to her. Um, you know, they said that she was nice and she, you know, was willing to answer questions and she really just cared for and connected with her students I mean what else can you ask for in a teacher really now being a teacher she didn't really make too much money and being on her own, you know, a young, she was 24 uh, at the time period we are talking about. This is the early 90s. This is the time period we're in, in this case. So at this time, she's in her, you know, early to mid 20s. So she's just trying to build her life and teaching just wasn't paying all the bills so she had a second job after school from like I believe it was five to close which was around nine or nine thirty she worked at 
um, a place called Brittany's Card and Gift Shop, also in Agawam. And like I said, she worked there weekdays from 5 to 9 or 9.30. And she also really enjoyed this job. She was just a chill person. You know, she just didn't have drama in her life. Her life was super average. She was a teacher just trying to make a living and, you know, working at a gift card. I mean, not a gift card, a gift shop and a card shop, um, just trying to pay the bills. And being a teacher, she had, you know, great communication skills. So, I mean, she had customers that would come in all the time, just, you know, just to see her and talk to her and buy things because she was great um, but early late March early April um, Lisa starts to feel like someone is watching her and that's a creepy ass feeling. Have you ever felt like someone's watching you? Not just like a little bit, like, ooh, like it's dark and I feel like there's something around, but literally you can feel someone watching you. And this bothered her enough to where she told her family and friends which was an absolute right thing to do she felt something was wrong and she voiced you know she reached out and communicated to her family and friends listen I really feel like somebody is watching me and she asked her family and friends could you please check on me frequently? So her family and friends would come into the gift shop frequently to see her, talk to her, check on her. You know, she was doing everything right. The worst thing you can do is not to say anything because you never know what can happen. And I'm just like surprised, I guess. A lot of people just don't say anything. If you have a bad feeling about something, say something. See something, say something is what the you know, the slogan is or whatever. But it's true. Always always tell somebody now on April 15th 1992 Lisa gets out of her school and heads to the card shop 
for her shift, which is from five to nine p.m. So it's like 4.30, she left school, goes to the gift shop, and about an hour later, her sister comes in to visit her, check on her, make sure that she's good. And she stayed for about a half an hour. Her sister said that around 6 p.m. she had left and she did not notice anything out of the ordinary she didn't see anybody in the store she you know checked outside there wasn't anybody outside and around 8 20 that same night a customer had come into the store and also found nothing out of the ordinary. Everything was fine. She went in, got what she needed, and her receipt says 8.20 p.m. Nothing was wrong. Now, another customer goes in the store right as they were about to close as a former retail worker customers who come in right when the store is about to close makes all of the employees cringe so hard inside <laughs> because we literally just want to go home. We're done. Like if it's past, if it's like 8.45 and the store is closing at 9, don't go in. <laughs> Stay away from the stores that are closing. Like the last 15 minutes, don't go in. Because you will get dirty looks. You won't get the right um, amount, of, <laughs> amount of help and you will feel rushed because we are rushing you to get out because we just want to clean and go home okay mini rant over so this <coughs> this woman comes in at nine o'clock and She finds the shop open, but the store appears empty. Now this kills me inside, okay? This customer said that she heard sounds coming from the back room. And she just left. She didn't say anything. You know, I understand, like, maybe she was scared, or, I don't know, maybe she just didn't think 
anything of it for some reason, but she left. So the next morning, the morning shift person pulls up to the gift shop and notices that Lisa's car is still there in the same spot. Now, she says that she initially just thought that uh, she was just gonna, she might have just came in to help uh, stuff balloons for Easter weekend. So, I know that sounds weird, stuff balloons, but I think, like, you ever been to those bougie gift shops or whatever and like they have um like the displays inside of balloons I think that's what um she meant by that but initially she had thought that she came to help her with the balloons for Easter weekend you know the open flag was still out and the door was unlocked but when she went inside she was getting starting to get a really bad feeling and she noticed that Lisa's keys were there her purse was there um, her stuff from school was there so she might have brought papers to look at a grade or, or whatever so all of her school stuff was there Lisa wasn't there so she calls the police and the police come and they go in the back room and they do find a sign of a struggle they find like kick marks on the door and they find you know blood splatter in uh, certain places so they file a missing persons report they call her parents her parents come down to the gift shop and the police question them they talk to them <sighs> and her parents are like naturally freaking out they can't find her nobody knows anything and unfortunately four days later on Easter Sunday a man had found a body about four miles from the gift shop in a wooded area on the edge of town and he called the police the police come down and they're pretty sure that this is Lisa they have the parents come down again and they identify the body as Lisa Ziegert she was 
raped and beaten and stabbed to death. Now the police and the whole community are shocked. This is one of those towns that this doesn't, things like this don't happen here or there, whatever. Things like don't happen like that. So the police are trying to find witnesses. And so they they get three critical tips. So one was from the woman who was at the shop at 820, like I had said, said nothing was unusual. The second was the woman that came in at nine and, you know, found the shop open, but appearing empty. Now, she, they figured out, and this creepy, they figured out that when this customer had arrived, Lisa and her killer were actually in the back room. And when she had heard the sounds coming from the back room, that is, you know, thought to be Lisa struggling with her killer, which is creepy AF. Like, uh uh-uh. If I, if that was me, and I found that out, I would have felt so guilty. Because if she would have investigated or called the police, the outcome could have been very different. It could have been worse. I mean, this could have been a double homicide or this could have been an attempted homicide. But, I mean, we can't sit here and go on what ifs, you know? Um, But I'm sure that this woman felt very guilty. Now, the third was a woman who stopped at the intersection of Route 75 and Adams Street around 9.15. And she saw a man in a car with a woman struggling in the back seat. And it was driving towards the area where Lisa's body was found. Again, why? If you had seen this, why didn't you say something? I guess the theme of this would be see something, say something, because this seems to be what we're what we keep coming back to here in every witness. Um, if they would have just said something, things could be different. But said we can't go on what if but um moving on so they have her wake and thousands gathered in the pouring rain for her wake i mean 
the turnout was so immensely great. So many people turned out because this community was just rocked by this and they wanted to come show support. They even put a little uh, remo- uh, wow, they put a little memorial at the middle school for her. Anyway, the car that this person had seen this woman struggling in was described as a late model Bronco or Blazer, either dark red or dark blue, but it was never found. The police took um, plaster molds of the tire tracks left at the murder scene. Now, like I said, Lisa had thought that somebody was watching her and she was a member of Healthy Habits Fitness Center and there was actually a man who reportedly watched Lisa and other members of this Healthy Habit Fitness Center while they worked out. And this was shortly before her murder. And it wasn't just a guy looking at women to be a typical guy. It was like he watched women closely in a perverted, dark way. It was something really weird about this guy. Again, I'm just gonna say it. See something, say something. Like, nobody said anything until after the fact. Come on, people. <laughs> Literally. Um, so this guy is described uh, Caucasian in his 30s in 1992. About 5'10", he had a beer belly, wavy light brown hair, um, he wore workout clothes, but dread, uh, he drove a red sports car. Now, they, there's this guy, his name was Edward, and he was the roommate of Lisa's boyfriend, and he was questioned, and He worked across the street um, at a restaurant, across the street from the gift shop. And he worked at a restaurant. And for some reason, everyone thought he did it. And he was also the son of an Agawam police officer. So the community like really gave this guy a hard time and they thought that the Agawam Police Department was covering something up. Now, I mean, rumors in towns fly, you know, a small town. I mean, Agawam isn't super small, but small enough to where rumors were flying all over the place. You couldn't go anywhere without this case being talked about you know, at the grocery store, at the movies, at, you know, the 
convenience store and walking down the street, neighbors, everyone was talking about Edward and how he was the son of a police officer and they're covering something up. But Edward had a solid alibi. He was at work the whole time. He was... His Some of his family and friends worked at this restaurant and vouched for him. He had a solid alibi. And people still were saying that Edward had something to do with this. The police were covering it up. And this literally went on for years and years and years. So the investigators reveal you know, to the public in a press conference that in the weeks prior, Lisa had told people that she thought she was being watched. And that she asked friends and relatives to visit her frequently because she she didn't like being at the gift shop alone. Now this, you know, led investigators to believe that she was being stalked by her killer in the weeks leading up to her murder. This feeling she had was probably more than a feeling most likely because she felt this way in the weeks right before she was killed so her feeling was right now this case goes absolutely cold I mean weeks go by months go by years go by And even decades go by. Now, like I said, I was going to report this as a unsolved case. But... In 2015, you know, DNA in, let's just say, 1992, DNA was like in its infancy. And by 2015, like, hey, we're making progress here. Let's send the DNA out. Now, it the DNA from the crimes the crime scene was sent to this place called Parabon Nano Labs. It's a DNA forensic analysis service, and what this did was take the DNA and put a face to it. So it was determined that the killer was fair-skinned with hazel or brown eyes and brown or black hair. They have a face to what the killer most likely looked like. Now this is huge. I mean, because it, 
lot of people need to actually see something to jog their memory or, you know, just give them that aha moment. And unfortunately, even though there was a face to this crime now, didn't hit in um, any databases for, you know, this person had never uh, really been in the system, apparently. So, it's progress, right? So, they, it's 2015 at this point. They now have a face to the crime. Now, Two, another two years goes by. And it's 2017 at this point. <sighs> at 6.15 p.m., This girl comes into the Massachusetts State Police Barracks in Westfield, Massachusetts. She was the girlfriend of this man named Gary Sharon. And she told the desk officer that after she had left for work that morning, Shara left notes for her at her house. Now she brought them with her and gave them to the police. There were four pages of handwritten notes which constituted like three separate documents. First two pages are addressed to Gary Shara's girlfriend which is the one who brought them to the police. Now in this note, it said that he abducted, raped, and murdered a young woman about 25 years ago. He also said that he received a message from his roommate the night before saying that the state police, the Massachusetts State Police had come to his house with paperwork for him and he said that the paperwork would be a warrant for his DNA and that by giving the DNA it would send him away for life and he also indicated that it would all end and that he was going to either kill himself or quote face the music and the other document was for the Ziegert family. He wrote that he could never apologize enough for taking their daughter and their sibling. And he said that he regretted it and that he hated himself for doing it. And that he was sorry. Later that same day, so three hours later, 9.50 p.m., 
Gary Shara's car is located in the emergency room at the Johnson Memorial Medical Center. The like the um, the Mass State Police come down. The Connecticut State Police are there. The the um, the police of that town come down. And the also the Connecticut State Police Major Crimes Unit. They're all there looking at this car. In plain sight, through the windshield, a folded piece of paper on the dashboard in hand, you know, it was a handwritten paper. It said, quote, to whoever finds my body, I apologize for any psychological trauma incurred. Call the Massachusetts State Police. Thank you. G-E-S. <laughs> what the heck, right? Now, they go into the hospital. And he's there in the emergency room. He tried to kill himself by overdose. It doesn't say overdose on what, but he was not successful. He was alive. The next day, September 15th, 2017. No, sorry. Back up. <laughs> sorry, I forgot a little important detail <laughs> so he was al <clears throat> alive and they arrest him and charge him with first degree murder aggravated rape kidnapping all the things so the next day september 15th 2017 a search warrant for his house is Executed. They go in and they take items that have biological material, like his toothbrush, hairbrush, probably a razor, all the things, and test them. Now, less than 24 hours later, this is Saturday, September 16th, 2017, the DNA comes back matching a previously unknown subject and it is now identified that face that was made this is who done it gary shara now he pleads not guilty which doesn't make sense because he wrote all those notes saying that he killed a woman, blah, blah, blah. But now he pleads not guilty. Now, when I started researching this case, I thought that this was an unsolved case. Until I dug deeper and found out that it was just recently, in the past two years, that they found him. And even more recently, like less than two months ago, September of 2019, he asks the judge 
if he can change his plea to guilty. So the plea is changed to guilty. The DA took away the charges of rape and kidnapping because of the statute of limitations. Uh, So he couldn't really, I mean, in Massachusetts, first degree murder, um, you know, you're going away for life anyway. So what does it even matter really? so yeah, the district attorney, which uh, his name is Anthony Galuni. Uh, this is Hampton, Hamden County, for um, Agawam, and yeah. So they dropped the charges of kidnapping, aggravated rape. It ex- you know it's it, the statute of limitations has expired, and the DA, Mr. Galuni said that he would actually send a letter to the the Department of Corrections recommending that he serve his sentence at MCI Norfolk. That's Massachusetts Correctional Institute, Norfolk. This prison, MCI Norfolk, is a minimum security prison. I have actually been there myself and no, no, don't you go making assumptions. I did not go there because I was arrested and put in prison. I went there for bring your daughter to work day when I was 13. My mother actually worked in this prison. And yeah, I went there for bring your daughter to work day. And they had a little sit-down session and they taught us how to make tattoo guns how the prisoners make them with pens and um little razor motors and stuff it was um interesting to say the least something i'll never forget i mean i even remember what i was wearing it was so Ugh, cringy. <laughs> but anyway, this is a very minimum security prison. Um, so he recommended that he would be able to serve out his life sentence at MCI Norfolk, nice and cozy. <laughs> so, the region's most notorious cold case for over two decades is finally solved with a confession and it's just so great the parents said that they felt like they won the lottery I mean there was so many emotions can you imagine after so many years how long do you hold oops sorry how long do you hold on to that hope 
you know, um, how long? After over 25 years, I don't know if I, I mean, obviously I would hope that, you know, my daughter's murder would be solved or my sister's murder would be solved. But the reality is that after so long, it probably isn't going to be. And DNA really came through, you know? Um, the developments in our technology are so amazing and they are helping us do amazing things and solve cases that could never be solved without DNA and I'm just so happy for this family that they finally get that closure this man had lived for 25 years in the community like not too far away from where this happened he was living a regular life he had a wife and a life and a child even he ended up getting divorced and in 1993 his wife even told the police that she thought he had something to do with this but nobody would listen nobody would listen to her she was struggling with alcoholism and I really think that was partly why nobody would listen to her and that is so insane this could have been solved one year less than a year after it happened and because the police wouldn't listen this drags on until 2019 or you know 2017 when they got him that is insane you know she tried to see something say something but nobody would listen I mean that's the other moral of this story is besides see something say something if somebody does say something take it seriously listen to them help them investigate for them advocate for them even if you feel like it's so stupid and maybe they're paranoid or or crazy but what if they're not you know if somebody really feels that uncomfortable to say something please please take them seriously I'm just glad that he is serving the rest of his life in prison for what he did to poor Lisa. She was amazing. She was helping special needs children every day. And she was working hard to make a life for herself. And her life was just cut short by some asshole. And she knew something was wrong. It's just 
that's today's Mass Murder Monday. And I hope you all will take something away from this episode. If something's bothering you, say something. And if someone says something to you, please listen. No matter how crazy it seems. I have a case that I want to try and get out to you guys either tomorrow or the next day. I will you will hear from me before the next Mass Murder Monday. Promise, promise, promise. We are almost at a thousand listens. We would be there already if I had posted more episodes, but I have not. Life is crazy. Life is great, but life is crazy. Um, I hope you all are having a fabulous November. It's almost Turkey Day. One of my favorite holidays of the whole entire year. And uh, I'll see you guys or you'll hear from me in a few days. I hope you all are having a great Monday. And enjoy your Tuesday, Wednesday. Enjoy your week. I don't know when (laughs) you'll hear from me next, but hopefully on Tuesday or Wednesday. Have a great night. Happy Mass Murder Monday.